Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And the last time we covered the last few verses of chapter 1, it was uh, true optimism. You know, some people are just happy-go-lucky, but the Apostle Paul was optimistic even in very difficult circumstances. And what he did was he taught us that it's not our environment, it's not our circumstances. You know, a lot of times we look at the outside to fix the inside. But when we are a believer, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the lie from the enemy is to get you to think that that's not powerful or it's not going to help and you have to try, you know, humanistic ways and things like that. But the bottom line is that the Apostle Paul's optimism came from the inside. So it really was inside out from the Holy Spirit, from what God was doing in him. Even though he was in a dank prison, uh, he was optimistic and we covered that. Today we're going to look at Christ's humility model. And model implies that we follow the model. So Christ in his uh, humility was something that we need to look at and, and emulate in a sense. And we're only going to cover 11 verses this morning uh, because we're going to cover some heavy theological issues, which I think are part and parcel to the chapter, some things that we need to know. Uh, we'll look at things like kenosis, hypostatic union, and the peccability versus the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to translate all that into English in the message, but um, this whole idea of God coming down, the second person of the Godhood, becoming man, taking that form, living and dying, and dying for our sins, is a lot of Christians have questions. So I'm hoping that this morning I get to answer a lot of those questions. So starting with verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we're going to cover this in three parts. The first part is Paul's exhortation to humility. And there is this interesting model where uh, humility leads to exaltation. We'll look at that in Christ. We'll look at that in our own lives. Uh, but I'm going to table that for a moment. So exhortation to humility. Now let's look at the context. If you weren't here last Sunday at the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks. He exhorts the afflicted or the humbled. Uh, and now... He's looking at those in the church, I guess in the Philippian church, to call them to humility. So you can see two things going on. Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Uh, there's, a, there's a humbling effect there from the outside. Paul's also saying, as a church, we need to know how to be humble on the inside. Because, listen, let's face it, we're all sinners. And God brings us together in this organization called the church. And sometimes we hurt each other. You know, we have trials, you know, that 
in the Philippian church, there were factions, there were divisions. In the Corinthian church, the same thing. In churches today, you see some of these things, these like little party divisions. And Paul's saying, humility is the answer, to be humble. So he starts off in verse 1 with an if, and then a then is implied in verse 2. Okay, when you go to the original grammar, it's a conditional statement. If these things happen, then these things shall follow. That's called in English grammar a conditional statement, the same type of grammar is in the Greek as well. Uh, you can also look at a since. Since these things are taking place, then these things need to happen in the church. And I'll go through them. Since or if those in Christ are consoled. When we walk with the Lord and we mature in the Lord, you know, the Lord is there to console us, uh, to be encouraged, to be comforted. If you've been a Christian for some time, you'll know that sometimes in your deepest difficult times of personal pain, when maybe people can't help you, you know that when you're alone, the Lord ministers to you, right? So these things do happen, since these things happen, um, that there is fellowship of the Spirit. If we are believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We should be having some sort of fellowship with the Spirit. If there's any affection, any mercy. And I love this because there's, a, there's an assumption Paul makes. These things are happening, so guess what? I need you to follow through with this next list that I'm going to cover. And I love that. You know, if we have relationships where we have low expectations, don't expect them to be deep relationships, right? We don't expect much. You know, we don't expect loyalty. We don't expect reciprocity. We don't expect love from someone we're having a relationship. Then you get what you get. You get what you ask for. Paul, and I think we should have sometimes higher expectations. Paul assumed that these Christians, they called themselves a church, that they would be a light in, the, in Philippi. So, it stands to reason that, guys, these things should be taking place. So then in verse 2, he says very, something very interesting I'm going to come back to. Fulfill or complete his joy. Philippians, fulfill my joy. And we can look at this in a personal application as well. Be this, be like-minded, he says. Be of one accord, be of one mind. What do these things mean? If you take them together, it means co-spirited. That's kind of cool. As a church, we seek the Holy Spirit's will together. I hear a lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit told me, and that's great. But we should be co-spirited. We should be seeking the Lord's will together because we are a church. You know, as Christians, we don't exist as Christians in a vacuum. We don't exist in isolation. Remember, God called us to this thing called the church, which is a group of individuals, right? to be co-spirited, to be similar in sentiment, to have harmony in the church. Do we have harmony in the church? I mean, listen, we live in a very me-centered, self-centered society, so that stuff's going to invade and infect the church. And there, you know, we all know Christians, and maybe we've been there at some point, that it's just all about us. You know, hey, it's just about what's good for me and my family. Um, that's really not what Paul is asking us to do. And he funnels us to, to get into this mindset, be of the mind of Christ, which I'm going to cover in the next few verses. You'll notice I missed something. He also said, if there's any love. Now, I put that separately, because to me, love, this agape love, this other-seeking, self-denying, in a sense, love that the Lord showed us and that we can show others is so powerful. So he says love too but I wanted to put it separately because I think love is that powerful. Love is abused in our culture, but this type of love is 
the kind of thing that can bring us together, that could bring unity, that could bring humility. Okay, verse 3. This is the don't do list. Don't do anything, number one, through selfish ambition. What is this? This is strife based on selfishness. This is really self-attained glory and putting the team aside. Pastor Vinny, coach in the back, has been coaching for decades. Don't you have problems when you have a player on the team, even though he or she may be good, and they're, they're such an individual, they're a superstar? It hurts the team. See what I'm saying? Now, is ambition bad? No. I have an ambition. My ambition is to come up here every Sunday and do a really good job teaching you the Scripture. However, a selfish ambition is if my ambition is to use all of you to become a, another Christian celebrity so my life is, is sweet and it's a free ride, an easy ride for the rest of my life. You see the subtle nuance between ambition and selfish ambition. Okay? Two, conceit. This is a lofty attitude of oneself um, that leads really to selfish ambition. And again, it's this me-centeredness that... So what are we talking about? I mean, I could sit here for 40 minutes and talk about how bad society is and the devolvement of American culture. But I would be selling you short and myself short if we didn't talk about things in the church. You know? Conceit, selfishness. There's some people that bounce from church to church with a real snooty attitude. And their attitude is, I'm going to find the perfect church that suits all of my needs. They're not thinking about getting together. They're not thinking about blending. They're not thinking about doing things as a team. They're, it's consumerism. We're not shopping for a car when we go to church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, going back to the do list, he says this, a few things. Have lowly, lowliness of mind, which is humility, to esteem others more than self. Let that sink in for a minute. That's not an easy thing to do. You know, for 48 years, when I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, I see the same person. It'd be kind of weird if I saw somebody else, wouldn't it? But, so we, we think about me, me, fixing my hair, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm putting on the clothes that I like. And God has not given us the ability to come out of ourselves and live in another person's literally shoes. So we have to fight against this me this it's all about me kind of thing. He says, um, it's understood to look out for our own interests, but also look out for the interests of others, especially believers. Now, we don't have to be told to look out for our own interests because we do that naturally, right? It's the survival of the organism. We're part flesh, but we're also part spirit, and that's why there's a war that goes on often. But he's saying, look out for the interests of others, okay? I, I call these... Christian checklists, and it's really incumbent upon all of us to look at these checklists and say, so where do I score? And if the score is not great, to say to the Lord, you know, I really, I want to change. I want to please you, Lord. I want to be part of something bigger than just me. Um, and we go to him, and he helps us to do that, right? There was an article that I read, and I would have copied it and brought it up here, but somebody distracted me, and I didn't save my space on the computer, um, and I can't find it now, but it was very interesting when I read it and it said that, talked about America becoming a post-Christian nation. And it's saying, especially a lot of young people, um, they don't really understand what Christianity looks like. I tell you, this was a very powerful article. And what it said was, a lot of unbelievers are seeing that Christians' lives are no different than their unsaved neighbors. So there's no desire. There's no difference. There's nothing that sets them apart. That's pretty sad. 
Now, I, maybe one day I'll find it again and print it out, but that was that in a nutshell. Going back to what the Apostle Paul said, he said, fulfill my joy. Does that mean that he was desperate and needy, and unless the Philippians did what he wanted, he was going to fall apart? No. He says, complete my joy. We already spoke about joy before. We already spoke about how Paul had the joy in the Lord. But there was a component to his joy, and joy can be on many different levels, where those that he was discipling were rising up, becoming mature. They were flying on their own. And that was something that was going to bless him immensely. You know? And, and I can tell you, I get this, because when you disciple somebody and you start to see that they become mature and they start flying on their own, and they don't need as much correction, and they eventually disciple somebody else. I get it. I see what he's saying. And that brings joy, the joy in the Lord. See, he could command the Philippians from 800 miles away in a prison to do the right thing. And he knew it. And he knew he wasn't just going to get a letter sent back from Philippi placating him. Oh yeah, everything's fine, don't worry about it. Well, he'll never know, he's in prison. But that wasn't their attitude. Their attitude was that they wanted to do the right thing by the Lord. You see, he didn't have FaceTime, he didn't have social media, he didn't have text, he didn't have email. He wrote the letter, he prayed about it, and he sent it. And his prayer was that God would convict them and change them. Okay? Now, what was he banking on? He was banking on, really, their spiritual reservoir. Right? In any church, um, the Apostle Paul was here today. If, you know, Jesus... Uh, spoke to different churches, the seven churches in Revelation. He had a, a message, a different message for each, each one. So if we got a message from, at Calvary Chapel Crossfields from the Lord, and the Lord called us to do the right thing in certain areas, maybe through the community, maybe some bad things that are happening in this area, would we rise to the occasion? Do we have that reservoir of God's Word? Do we have that reservoir of spirituality? Do we have that reservoir of having a relationship with the Lord. And that's what Paul was calling on the Philippians to do the right thing regarding. Verse 5. He goes on, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And... Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So the second out of three that we see this morning is Christ's example of humility. You know, we want to emulate Jesus. And when Jesus calls us to be salt and light, does he call us to have this light because we have dazzling personalities? No. He's the source of the light. You know, the, the moonlight is very beautiful on a dark night. But what you don't see as the planets are aligned is the moon is reflecting the light of the sun, which is far, far more glorious luminary. And as Christians, the light that we have needs to come from within. And it's funny because as you mature in Christ, sometimes you're 
dealing with a situation and you have to tell yourself to pull back the reins a little bit like a horse. Hey, whoa, take it easy. Let the Lord shine through you. And as dual-natured people, it's very interesting. You know, we have to understand that dichotomy between what we're doing in our own self-efforts and what the Lord is doing. I had a, uh, an experience with, <laughs> so I have a Verizon phone service, and the Verizon guy comes to my house, and he came out, and, you know, he looked like he wasn't having a great day, and I was in a hurry, and I had a very busy schedule. And I got that oh familiar nudging from the Lord to tell him about, to witness to him, tell him about me, you know. And I had that old familiar discussion with the Lord saying, you always do this when I'm busy. I got a lot of things to do today. Can you go to the next house? Maybe they're Christians. So, (laughs) but it was really cool because, and it wasn't me because I resisted at first. And then I start having this discussion with this guy and my wife is getting involved and boy, we had a great time with the Verizon guy. You know what I'm saying? I gave him a Bible and we, we had a super time. And I actually looked at, as I looked at his face, he actually looked different to me. He started to look like somebody I've, I've always known. Now, at the end, giving him the scripture and everything, I said, can you hear me now? <laughs> Just kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> so you've seen the commercials. No, it's a true story, though, but I didn't say that. Um, but it's, it's, it's amazing. God could use angels. God could use himself. For some reason, he uses sinners. I... You know, in Revelation, the, uh, can't, it escapes me which chapter my, my son would know, but the angel flies through the heavens and he's preaching the everlasting gospel. It's such a dark time spiritually that now he's starting to use angels, but, you know, he, of course, he uses the 144,000, etc. But at this dispensation, he uses us. And the light, I don't have any light of myself. Any light that I have comes from him, Okay. Verse 5, it says, have the same mind as Christ with this respect, humility, humility. But what did Christ say? What did Christ teach? What did Christ think? What did he do? We're not going to have those answers unless we look in the scripture. I had a, a friend, a good friend, who went to a denominational church and he, he said, well, we never really covered the scripture, maybe a verse here and there, but no, not, no real in-depth study. He goes, and I thought I was saved, but then I started coming to a church, and um, he really started getting the word and started to understand it, to understand his relationship with the Lord. He goes, now I know I'm saved. It's amazing what God's word can do. I mean, some fancy themselves Christians, and they're living a complete lifestyle that's certainly antagonistic to what the Lord would want. So we don't know who we are, or are we really Christians according to the Jesus of the Bible or some Jesus of humanism or some Jesus that the media makes up. It's very important that we understand this and that we read the word to get these answers. Verse 6, he reinforces the deity of Christ. He said he was in the form of God. The Greek word is morphe, where we get the word morph, to change, where we get the word metamorphosis. A lot of our English words come from the Greek, but Basically, the word morphe means the same substance of God. God is spirit. God is light. God is truth. God is love. You know, he's of a, a you know, we, we have an atomic structure. You take our cells and you break it down and you put it under an electron microscope and you keep amplifying and you'll find the cell and what's in the cell are, are elements and, and the, the base of, of the elements and the compounds and the molecules are atoms. 
not A-D-A-M, A-T-O-M, although A-D-D-A-M kind of started the whole thing. But God is of a different substance. He doesn't have an atomic structure. We're created. He's not. Pretty interesting. Christ did not consider it, it says, robbery or stealing. I've got a good word for today's society. Jesus Christ didn't consider it identity theft to consider himself equal with God because it would be for any other person. But he is the second person of the Godhead. He's equal with God. Okay, a few scriptures. Jesus is God, John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's about Jesus. And this is good for those, and I know some of you are friends who are Jehovah Witnesses or some who claim to be Christians but are not, they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They need to look because it's in their Bible too. They just have to find it. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the, he's the reflection of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Jesus made the worlds. Pretty powerful stuff. What did Christ do? Okay, now that we've built him up to be God because he always, you know, we know he's God. What did he do with that power and authority? Verse 7, something truly remarkable. He took the deity and he attenuated it. He dampened it. I'm going to keep explaining myself so that we really get a full picture of this. You know, he had to undo the, the sin curse that Adam and Eve started that doomed the whole humanity to, die, to perish for their sins in judgment. What he did was he reopened the door for all to come and to get into heaven through his sacrifice. Let me just say this. I'm going to go into a little theology, but before I do that, we can't miss the main point. The main point is Jesus did all of this humbly because he loves you and me. I don't like to talk about individuals a lot because society does plenty of it, but for this application, all you individuals in this room, you can claim that. He died for me personally. Amazing. All the me's in this room, including me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But So that's what, before we get into all that, he did it because he loves us. So what does this mean? It says Jesus made himself of no reputation. Okay? This brings us to what's called kenotic theology or kenosis. And that word comes from the Greek word kenao, which is translated in verse 7 to empty himself. Okay? Or to make himself of no reputation. Or, in a sense, to neutralize temporarily his deity attributes. When we understand kenosis, and um, kenosis starts first the coming down, the emptying himself, the neutralization, the dampening effect. He leaves the glory of heaven. And then there's another term called hypostatic union. And what that is, is when the person of God um, in all eternity, Jesus Christ, right, merges with the personhood of man. Two personal beings come together. If you really think about it, it's fascinating and it's very deep. So the hypostatic union is the merging of two personal natures. God and man both have a personal nature to make Jesus Christ. In a sense, and again, just for our understanding in our vernacular in 2016, he hybridized himself. He joined with human flesh. Amazing. I think of a hybrid, you know, a car that's it's electric, it's gas, and, it, 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 and it's contained in a car. Well, Christ hybridized himself from God 
leaving his, his glory in the heavens to become man. It's been said to understand this, some good expressions, that Jesus on earth laid aside his expression of deity, but he never gave up his possession of deity. Pretty powerful. And I've used the, the uh, illustration in the Mount of Transfiguration where there were times that his deity just shone through. <laughs> his bones, his skin, his muscles, his flesh, they were no match for his deity. It, the, the, the deity that shone through him, the godness or whatever you want to call it, was blinding and terrified the people that were around him. Now, my, and if the lights were off, it would be more obvious, but if I take my fingers that look opaque because the blood is running through my arteries and my uh, capillaries and my veins, and it's not leaking out right now, which is a really good thing. So you could almost say, well, then you're, you're opaque, you're, you're um, impermeable in a sense. When I take this flashlight, which is a high-powered flashlight, for those of you in the front, you could see it much easier. And I won't do it too long because I'll burn my finger. But, and I turn it on, you can see, for those of you in the front, you can see it's red. So what happens is the power of the light, the, the, the blood and the, the, the this impermeable nature of my hand is no match for the power of this high-powered light. You can see something shining through it. And that was my illustration and my understanding of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's amazing. He's, got, he's fully God and he's fully man. And actually, I just answered my next question. I was going to ask you, how much percentage, how much percentage was Jesus God and how much percentage was he man? 100% and 100%. Not 50-50. Now, there were consequences of this merge or this coming together. A few things. Jesus was not omnipresent. He confined himself to a body with two arms and two legs and a central nervous system that took him wherever he needed to go. So when he took the form of a man, he was omnipresent when he was in, in, the, in the heavenlies. He is now, but when he was on the earth, he was not. Okay, so there's some limitations that come with this merging. He needed sleep, he needed water, he needed food. Um, he did fast for 40 days, but it most likely, and actually I read a lot on fasting, that is like the upper limit for somebody who has done this before. You could, you could be very sick if you try to do this for 40 days, but um, if he did it any further, the human part of him could have died before he went to the cross because he, he needed to eat, he needed to sleep, he needed to drink water, which he didn't need when he was in heaven. And that wasn't to sustain the deity part of him, but it was to sustain the fully man part of him. Pretty interesting, isn't it? He left heaven, heaven's glory, to become a servant. And for the only time in eternity, he bore the sins of others. God can't, he can't be immersed in sin. He's God, he's holy, he's perfect. When he took the form of a man, he took the sins of the world on his body on that tree, and he died for our sins. Okay, something that he didn't do, wouldn't do, shouldn't have to do, being in heaven. On, in a nutshell, Jesus, creator, God, the second person of the tr Trinity, leaves heaven, empties himself of his privileges, right? Takes the form of a man, and un he goes to undo the sin curse brought about by Adam. He lives as a servant, dies as a sacrifice for our sins on that cross, and opens the door for everyone 
everyone to be saved. What president, king, ruler ever did something like that? Nobody. You know, even some of these things. What king would ever leave his throne to serve and to die for his servants? None that I know of, but Christ did. Now, this incarnation or Christ taking the form of a man is very interesting because it brings us to another doctrine, peccability versus impeccability of Jesus Christ. And what that is, comes from is the Latin peccabilis, which means the ability to sin. So people ask the question, was Jesus, since he took the form of a man, able to sin? You know, that's a very interesting question because men sin, men and women sin, but God does not. And you have these instances where, where humanity, I don't want to say trumps, I say that lightly, trumps the deity in the sense that when he took the form of a man, he lost his omnipresence, right? But when, he, when God took the form of a man because God can't sin, that seemed to have trumped the humanity. So some people say Jesus was impeccable. He could not sin. Others say, smart people on both sides, say no, he could have sinned because he was tempted in all points like we were. He just did not. So that's what you have there. Um, and, and sin is a funny thing because when we're, before we're saved, we just do what comes naturally, whatever comes naturally to our flesh. We feed our flesh. We go out, we deal with people. It's amazing as such complex creatures with such a complex brain. And you see it today. You look at some of these videos, you see the news, you see crimes. People start to act like animals. They act actually worse than animals. You know, some animals in the wild have a code of conduct. And human beings, when they hate, they, uh, or when they're, they need their lust filled, they do some horrific things. Now, when we become Christians, we have another nature. We still have the flesh because Christians die, right? Go to funerals. So that is still going to play itself out, but we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So now we have another nature. We have dual natures. Here's the interesting thing. When a sin comes your way, every sin, you have the power to say, no, Lord, help me. But so the the possibility of not sinning is there when you take each sin, but the probability, <laughs> it's a probability in college and all this stuff, mathematical equations, the probability of the hundreds of millions of temptations that we deal with in our lifetime, you know, you flip a coin <laughs> 10 million times, there's no way you're going to get tails all the time. So the probability is that we will sin, we will miss the mark, and we will have to repent. So it, when you look at this in theology, it's, it gets actually kind of fascinating. Here's the danger of this. Of, and, and, you know, if you've ever met theologians, they like sit, you know, it's a stereotype. They sit in this office in a leather chair, you know, with a cigar, and they postulate all the things of God. The danger with this type of getting into too much theology is, is that it can become prideful. So what happens is, and, and I know some even ministries that are so into, we, they all have to go to seminary, and who's got the masters of divinity, and who's got the doctors of theology, and, and they're all sitting in this room with these hypotheticals. Instead of going out into the community, they're postulating, how would I talk to an atheist? How would I talk to this person? Um, that's really not what God wants. And what happens is we miss the forest for the trees when we do things like that. Remember, the irony is we can get so puffed up with knowledge 
that we forget this whole passage is about humility. So you see the two opposites working together. Um, I remember when I was a new believer, you know, I, I latched on to eschatology fast, the study of end times. I could tell you Revelation and Matthew 24 and uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, all the chapters and all the nations that would line up in the last battles. But I was uh, married, saved not that long, married not that long, and I really wasn't a great husband. I mean, I didn't do anything horrible, but, um, you know, I was actually being a hypocrite. I was going out there telling everybody how much I knew, and I really needed to work on things at home. And God humbled me. He kind of sidelined me for a while. So we have to put everything into perspective. And, and I say this, too, as a joke um, during the holiday season. You know, some Christians want to go out there into the world, go to the outlets, and the first person that says, Happy Holidays, they want to shout back, It's Merry Christmas! You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, without love, it's all about Jesus. I don't want to hear Happy Holidays. You know, <laughs> so... Again, we miss the point when we do that. I mean, we could go out there, we could, we could learn, we could, you know, have all this information and then, and then come back to church and just be unfriendly to people, snotty, snooty, snobby. I have a peeve with unfriendly Christians, I really do. Um, it was actually stumbling to me as a new believer. You know, we went to a big church and I knew people knew us and sometimes you'd see them out and they'd just like, act like they didn't know you. That's annoying. And that really shows a lack of love. So... We have to put all things into perspective. It's good to understand. It's good to get into the nuts and bolts. But what's the point here? Love and humility. Period. So, do we have the mind of Christ that Paul asked? Are we humble? Do we sacrifice? Remember, Jesus gave up everything. Have we, have it, has it cost us anything to be Christians? Been saved 5, 10, 15 years. Has it cost us anything? You know, hopefully it has, because sacrifice is a big part of, of that Christian walk. Last few verses, and I'll read it again. It says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Here's another thing that people get confused on. But it seems like the Father was greater than the Son. Remember, when Jesus came to take the form of a man, and here's the theologians argue this too, well, he wasn't omnipresent, but he also wasn't omniscient. He gave up some of the all-knowingness to take the form of a man. Um, and, and what we do know is he did humble himself before the Father. He took that subservient role while he, everything played out on the earth. Is Christ equal to the Father? Yes, he is. Did he change his role like he did when he took the form of a man when he came to earth? Yes, he did. And sometimes Christians struggle with that. I'm confused. Remember... When he took the form of a man, a lot of things changed. And then when he rose from the dead, well, his body couldn't be killed anymore. He was immortal. He was always immortal. When he died on the tree, was God killed? No. The part of him that he took that was a man was killed. It lost all of its blood, but Jesus gave up the spirit. He was in control of his death. Pretty impressive. And so... Listen, I'm, I'm open to emails, questions, writing notes, sending me pieces of paper. Um, you know, it's a lot to digest. So it says that he gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is going to happen one day. 
The third point, exaltation from humility. Christ dies on the cross, he's buried, he's risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven. And there will come a day where every person, from Adam to the last person who lives on this earth, including any angel that was ever created, will kneel before Christ and confess that he is Lord. And understanding monarchies and the old wars and stuff, Paul presents it in a way that everybody could understand. When you were conquered, when you had a, a much greater military or a leader who was superior, you'd have to get down on your knee, you have to bow, and you'd have to confess that he's the potentate, that you will serve him, that you will be in allegiance to him. That's going to happen one day. Now, I'm going to do it because I want to do it. <laughs> and many of you are going to do it because you want to do it. Out of adoration, we love the Lord. He's awesome. He's done so much for us. We've walked with him on our days on the earth. Others will do it out of obligation, and it'll be forced. And they will confess that he was, he's the Lord. Now, it says something interesting under the earth. When I talked about, um, I believe it was Luke 18, we talked about Hades. We talked about the realm of the dead. Um, in Revelation, we spoke about the abyss. There's some really interesting places in the earth and in the heavens that God has reserved, almost like a place of incarceration, um, where demons are kept, and some of them where the, the dead who've rebelled against God are kept. They're still conscious. Okay, Everybody's going to come up, and they're going to acknowledge who he is. Um, so... I would just say this too, and, and I have Christians periodically coming to me and they get frustrated. My coworker mocks me. They say, my family member says insolent things about Christ and God, and I get so mad. Think about this. Think about this. So what I do is I think about this and I think, I gotta suck it up, not take it personal, and really try to be that person that God wants me to be because I want to win them before it's too late. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of sorrow when we see this, right? So what? The person's mocking us temporarily. Big deal. Take your mind, bring it to the scripture. God is very patient, very loving, but one day the time is going to run out and it's going to be very sobering. He has the name above every name. The name can also be translated character, authority of God. He has that authority of God over any religious leader. Now people ask me, well what about Muhammad? Well what about Buddha? Well what about the popes? And I say, Jesus died for all of them and their followers. We should never take any man and elevate him and put him in God's place. There is no in place of Christ. There's only Christ. One mediator between God and man and that's Jesus Christ. Very important. Those people are in tombs. There's nice things written about them. A lot of them have their bones are still there. But they're dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He took, he took his whole package with him. He went right up to heaven and he was transformed. So, a few things before we close. The, princi the princi um, principle of humility to exaltation also plays out in Scripture. And we can go through a few of these. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, through 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That doesn't mean we put God on our, tames, on our timetable. I need deliverance from this, and I need it now. This person's on my nerve, and I need, to be, I, need to, I need to be the winner in this contest. It says in due time, in God's time. 
we don't set the, the time clock. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, we may see those getting away literally with murder. It's temporary. <laughs> it's temporary. A lot of these scriptures will play out in the future. Matthew 23, 12, it says, whoever, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What do we need to do now? Just be obedient. Just out of love and obedience, just obey what he says. The definition of humility is a modest or low view of one's importance. Why is that important as Christians? Because, as I gave you my earlier example, is that we want God to shine through us. Everybody here in this room has abilities, has talents, has uh, expertise in something. But when it comes to our interactions, we want God to shine through us. And sometimes it's tough to, to turn the spigot off of self and open the spigot off, let God do his thing. This is why I'm not a big fan of celebrity Christianity, and I don't want, I don't want to say names and go through it again, but um, there was a, a Calvary pastor who had the biggest church in the world, and um, he fell many times into sin. Uh, and I remember listening at one of the conferences to his message. And I'm listening to like 20 sermons. It was, it was a great CD, you know, this one conference. And he came on, and I'm listening, and I'm trying not to be critical, but I'm thinking to myself, I think the guy lost his edge. You know, we, we need to stay humble. And what happens is some preachers and ministries, they get so lifted up that they're just they just lose their edge because the Lord withdraws from them. Something I don't want from myself. Humility, it's been said, is not thinking less of yourself. People think, I have to think less of myself. I have to whip myself. I have to, you know, do what the monks do. No, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Putting less time into it. That's a, I, again, I wish I came up with that. I don't steal stuff. I just say it and... I don't even know who said it, but it was really good, you know. Um, how important is humility? Humility starts at the end of chapter 1 in Philippians and carries all the way through to chapter 3, and there's only four chapters in Philippians. That's how important humility is. Humility leads to unity, better communication, peace, understanding, and love. The title today is Christ Humility Model, and the scripture tells us that it's something that we need to follow. A model, an example, a paradigm is set so that we follow that paradigm, model, template, whatever you want to call it. This is Christ's humility model. Paul starts with saying to the church, you guys need to be humble. And he says, let me give you an example of Jesus. That's the model to follow. And let me just say this again. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Remember, this isn't a suggestion. It's not up for debate. It's good for the Philippian church, it's good for our church, and it's good for every church. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.